When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In a few moments more, we shall lose sight of this devoted city, which has experienced as strange a reverse in so short a time as ever was recorded in the disasters of war, thrown from proud success and elated prospects into an abyss of hopeless wretchedness. Six hours ago, the enemy were seeking safety from them by flight. This moment, we dropped them from ours into the hands of this enemy for no other crime but too much confidence in us. William Eaton For the four years of Jefferson's first term, the war with Tripoli had been a constant issue. Being conducted so far away from the capital city, there were often stretches of time when new information would be non-existent until another dispatch from the Mediterranean arrived. However, it still remained an open conflict for the administration, and money was continually flowing out of government coffers in the prosecution of it. As President Jefferson began his second term, though, there would finally come a resolution, though not everyone on the American side would be pleased with how it came about and the consequences of the peace. Before we dive into that, though, I'd like to welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to Anthony from the Disastrous History Podcast, who provided the intro quote for this episode. Disasters often make the news headlines, but we don't always know the history behind those stories. In his podcast, Anthony, with his interest in all things historically disastrous, shares with the audience the history of various disasters, messes, and all-around screw-ups that can be found in the annals of time. To give it a listen, you can go to the website at disastroushistory, that's all one word, dot com, or you can search for Disastrous History in your favorite podcast app of choice. I also have a link to the website on the source notes page for this episode. Before we dive in, I did want to share that I will be presenting at the Intelligent Speech Conference on Saturday, April 24th, 2021. I'll let some of my fellow conference presenters tell you a bit more about it. By any means necessary. If the unbelievable. When Napoleon led Boulogne for a year. Zachary Davis. Jim Rackman. Benjamin Jacobs. I'm Eric Marcus. Stan McManamy. Brian I. Free. Redred Lynch. Susan Archery. Alex Clifford. B.T. Newberg. Raven Forrest. Rescalzo. Stephen Guerra. Elsine Chris. David Crowther. And I, Liz Covard, will be speaking alongside 40 other great content creators. This will be an event that you don't want to miss. Intelligent Speech is back. Intelligent Speech is an online conference dedicated to connecting the best independent educational content creators with their listeners. This year's Intelligent Speech Conference will be held on Saturday, April 24th, starting at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, or, for our friends across the Atlantic, 3 p.m. London Time. Tickets will be $30, but are available for only $20 as an early bird special. You can get them online at intelligentspeechconference.com slash shop. The tentative schedule is currently up on the website, so go check it out and get your tickets today. 
When we last discussed the Tripolitan conflict back in episode 3.21, we left off with Lieutenant Stephen Decatur and a small force carrying out a raid in February 1804 to render the captured USS Philadelphia unusable to the Tripolitan forces. Commodore Edward Prable reported to the U.S. Minister to France the next month that the Tripolitan Pasha, Yusuf Karamanli, was quote-unquote extremely angry over the loss of the Philadelphia but it seemed that he was also impressed at the ability of the U.S. forces in carrying out the mission. American diplomats soon found him, as described by historian Frank Lambert, quote, much more reasonable in peace negotiations after the raid. This did not mean, however, that Prable was going to let up on Tripoli. Far from it. Prable's strategy entailed a, quote, blockade of the Pasha's harbors, destruction of Tripolitan cruisers and commerce, and attacks on the city of Tripoli to bring about a concession favorable to the United States. The problem was that the Commodore knew that his current forces would not be sufficient to truly counter the threats in the Mediterranean, especially as the Bay of Tunis was once more threatening to break off friendly relations with the U.S. Thus, Prable wrote two letters, a private letter to his friend, Secretary of War Henry Dearborn, and an official letter to Secretary of the Navy Robert Smith. In both, he asked for more forces, two more frigates, and, at the very least, a vessel to relieve the USS Argus from its post in Gibraltar. Unlike his predecessors in command of the Mediterranean Squadron, however, Prable would find support for his actions and proposals in Washington. President Jefferson met with his cabinet on May 26, 1804, to determine exactly what the next step should be in terms of the administration's policy towards the Barbary states. Beyond just the actions of Commodore Prable's squadron, the administration had set into motion another aggressive move, one that was unprecedented to that point in American history. If you may recall from episode 3.21, Hamid Karamanli, the brother of the Tripolitan Bashaw, had made overtures to the United States offering a quote-unquote perpetual peace if they would support him in a plot to overthrow his brother Yusuf. The offer of providing money and arms for non-American forces to stage an overthrow of a hostile regime sounded like a good idea to Jefferson and his cabinet, as it would to many more presidents in the future. Thus, on March 30th, 1804, the president gave his authorization for a new, quote, Navy agent of the United States for the several Barbary regencies to proceed to the region and aid Hamid in launching a land assault against Tripoli, supported by Commodore Prable's naval blockade. Such a sensitive mission would require a trusted agent, and Jefferson had just the person in mind. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. William Eden was born in Woodstock, Connecticut in February 1764 as the second son in a family that ultimately numbered 13 children. As noted by historian Richard Zacks, Eden's father, Nathaniel, quote, eked out a living by farming the crabby soil and teaching school in their home during the winter months. William, however, showed no interest in farming, choosing rather to spend his time either reading or engaging in stunts that would earn him a, quote, reputation as the town daredevil. He ran away from home at age 15 to join the Continental Army. At first, he found himself put into service as a waiter for higher-ranking officers, but upon re-enlisting for a three-year term, Eden was thrown into the midst of the conflict and at one point earned a leg wound. When he was discharged at the rank of sergeant in 1783, Eden enrolled in Dartmouth College. 
His family's financial difficulties, however, posed a threat to his ability to continue with his education. But with persistence and patience, Eden was able to earn a bachelor's degree in 1790. It wouldn't be long after his graduation before Eden found himself receiving a commission as a captain in the U.S. Army and being sent to the Northwest Territory to serve under General Anthony Wayne. It was thanks to his Army career that Eden met Eliza Danielson, the widow of a General Danielson, with the two wed in August 1792. After a couple of years in the Northwest Territory, Eden was transferred to the Georgia border with Spanish Florida. During his tenure in the Army, Eden gained a reputation for quote-unquote personal combativeness that impeded his chances of advancing in the ranks. After his army unit was disbanded, Eden worked as a special agent for Secretary of State Timothy Pickering before being appointed as U.S. Consul in Tunis in 1798. Though he would be retained in his post once Jefferson took office, as noted by Zacks, quote, William Eden, throughout his life, would be drawn to commit deeds that he considered righteous and others would consider reckless. Thus, Eden, in his position as U.S. Consul, drew on a personal expense account accorded to him as Consul to pay ransoms for individuals taken captive by Barbary pirates, regardless as to whether they were American or not, as well as to grease the wheels, so to speak, in negotiations with Tunisian officials. Eden's debts, however, would catch up with him, or, more accurately, with then-Commodore Richard Morris, who, in February 1803, was detained in Tunis due to the $22,000 debt that Eden had racked up in the name of the U.S. government. Morris worked out a deal to repay the debt as well as to remove Eden as U.S. consul. Not only did Eden set out to return to the U.S. in March 1803 with his professional reputation tarnished, but he also faced the possibility of financial ruin. When the State Department carried out the official audit of Eden's accounts in February 1804, the total sent to Eden that he owed was $40,803. As Zacks puts it into perspective, this was the equivalent of, quote, 20 years' salary for a Navy captain. Though his wife had been a wealthy widow when they had wed, even Eliza's fortune could not cover this debt. Why then, you ask, dear listener, was Eden the perfect agent for the first covert operation authorized by a U.S. president? William Eden, understanding the severity, if not the scale, of his debt issue, traveled to Washington, D.C. at the beginning of 1804 to appeal in person to government officials, including, but not limited to, President Jefferson. After learning the size of the debt the State Department was claiming he owed, Eden decided to appeal to the other prominent branch of the federal government. On February 16th, William Eden delivered an appeal to Congress. He had only been acting in the best interests of the United States, Eden contended. In fact, Most of the debt for which he was being charged had been spent to support Hamid in his rival bid for control of Tripoli. Surely everyone could see that the expense in putting the pro-American Hamid on the throne was worth it, versus the great expense that an anti-American regime in Tripoli would cost American shipping interests in the Mediterranean or to maintain an American naval force in the region indefinitely. As Eden put it, quote, Let my fellow citizens be persuaded that there is no born limit to the avarice of the Barbary princes. Like the insatiable grave, they can never have enough. Consign them the revenues of the United States as the price of peace, they would still tax our laborers for more veritable expressions of friendship. But it is a humiliating consideration to the industrious citizen, the sweat of whose brow supports him with bread, that a tithe from his hard earnings must go to purchase oil of roses to perfume a pirate's beard. At the conclusion of his speech, Eden brought the point home that, as an individual public servant, 
he had been working towards the best interests of the nation, and that, quote, if the expenses of the measures I have conducted, for which I thought myself authorized to apply public funds, should be admitted to my credit, there may be a small balance due to me from the United States. If not, I am at once a bankrupt and a beggar, net product of the earnings of almost five years' exile. Despite this appeal, the House of Representatives ultimately ruled that, though Eden made a, quote, well-founded claim for his sacrifices and expenditures in the public service, his petition to them was, quote-unquote, premature, and directed him back to the Treasury Department. As Zacks notes, quote, Eden was between a rock and a pair of tight-fisted Republicans. However, it was around this time that news of the Tripolitan capture of the USS Philadelphia was received in Washington, and everyone went into a frenzy. Even the budget-minded Jefferson called on Congress, quote, to increase our force and enlarge our expenses in the Mediterranean. Congress quickly acted to raise the funds needed and authorize ships to be pulled out of dry dock into service. It was in the midst of this frenetic activity that Jefferson and his administration turned to Eden and offered him an opportunity to redeem his honor and repay his debt by serving the nation on a covert mission to put Hamet on the throne of Tripoli. The U.S. would loan Hamet $40,000 as well as, quote, some field artillery and 1,000 pistols and muskets. And Eden, already established as a contact for Hamet, would facilitate the transfer of resources and coordinate with the rebel forces. In the meantime, the Treasury Department would just hold off on finalizing its report on Eden's expenses. And if all turned out well, and a more friendly ruler ended up in charge of Tripoli, well, maybe they would just see that those debts that Eden had incurred were justified after all. Naturally, Eden leapt at the chance. After a brief stop at home to visit with his wife and family and to attend to personal business, William Eden returned to Washington, D.C., right ahead eastward across the Atlantic. The only problem was that, since he was initially approached with the mission, new intelligence had come from the Mediterranean that had President Jefferson worrying, quote, that Hamid's chances were considerably poor and that the aid effort would cost far more than previously thought. Hamid had been forced out of the army base that he had been using as his headquarters in eastern Tripoli and was, by the latest report, in Egypt. Thus, it would cost more for Hamid to assemble a force in Egypt and march it overland back towards Tripoli, and then, as now, the terrain between those two places could prove challenging even for a well-equipped force. Eden wrote to a Federalist friend in Massachusetts about the wavering support of the administration. Quote, The president becomes reserved. The Secretary of War believes we had better pay tribute. Gallatin shrinks behind the counter. Mr. Madison leaves everything to the Secretary of the Navy Department. Thus, when we get to the Cabinet meeting on May 26, 1804, the administration decided to take a two-pronged approach. While Eden's mission was allowed to proceed and funds were allocated to support Hamid, it was much less than what had been previously promised. Further, the discretion to either ultimately execute the mission or call it off would be with the new Commodore, Samuel Barron, who was being ordered to the Mediterranean with a new squadron of additional ships that had been requested by Prable. The administration also authorized funds to pay a $500 per prisoner ransom if a treaty could be negotiated with Tripoli to secure the freedom of American prisoners being held by the Bashaw. As noted by Zacks, quote, the administration was trumpeting its war effort while secretly being willing to pay off Tripoli. While the government was working in Washington to finalize the details of the next phase in the Tripolitan War, the two people on the scene in the Mediterranean, Commodore Edward Prable and U.S. Envoy Tobias Lear, 
were at rather of an impasse when it came to negotiations. Lear spent most of the time gaining intelligence from other Americans in the area, including Richard O'Brien and even the captured captain, William Bainbridge. The French offered to mediate in the affair, but it quickly became apparent that, quote, the French consul, far from being impartial, was entirely on Yusuf's side. Meanwhile, Commodore Prable, like his superiors in Washington, was beginning to turn against the idea of supporting Hamid's rival claim for the Tripolitan throne. Though he had been working on coordinating plans with Hamid's agents since the winter, he changed gears and in May 1804 traveled to Naples in a successful attempt to secure gunboats to use to better patrol the harbor at Tripoli and put more pressure on that government to come to a peaceful resolution. With this enhanced force, Prabel returned to Tripoli in June to make another diplomatic push. Bashaf Youssef was informed, quote, that Prabel was determined neither to buy peace nor pay tribute, would pay only a moderate ransom for the American prisoners, and was willing to sacrifice all the prisoners rather than negotiate a peace incompatible with national dignity and honor. As these negotiations ultimately went nowhere, Prable turned in the summer to focus on military efforts and a strengthened blockade of Tripoli's harbor in order to bring Yusuf Karamanli to favorable peace terms. In mid to late summer 1804, Commodore Prable carried out a series of offensive but ultimately indecisive attacks on Tripoli Harbor, with the most daring being a plan in early September for the USS Intrepid to be converted to a fire ship and exploded right in the middle of a Tripolitan flotilla anchored between the battery and castle at the harbor. Though the plan was executed and the Intrepid exploded close to the city, it only shook the nerves of the residents of Tripoli rather than destroying the targeted flotilla or any of the harbor's defenses and resulted in the loss of life of 13 American sailors. In the meantime, Prable started hearing news that a new squadron was coming, but knew that Barron's inclusion with that squadron meant that, rather than getting additional forces for his command, he was instead being replaced as commander of the Mediterranean squadron. Commodore Barron and his squadron set out from Hampton Roads in Virginia in early July with Barron's flagship, the USS President, setting sail on the 4th of July. Though William Eden was on board, he was also quite irate with the administration as they were working to distance themselves from Eden's mission as much as possible. As Zach's notes, quote, If Eden failed, no documents existed to show the United States ever supported a mission to overthrow a foreign government. If this sounds familiar to students of later American history, this would become a trend for covert missions in eras to come. Despite Eden's foul mood, the squadron got underway with him in their midst, and they had good sailing, making quick time to the Azores. Then, due to a shift in the winds, the squadron didn't reach Gibraltar until August 12th. When they arrived there, Commodore Barron received disturbing intelligence of suspicious activities by Moroccan naval vessels, which American agents in the area were concerned meant a return of hostilities with Morocco, which had, only a couple of years prior, declared war with the U.S. Barron decided to leave two of the ships in his squadron in Gibraltar to monitor the situation and pressed on to Tripoli, finally arriving on September 9th to join with Prable's squadron. Secretary of the Navy Robert Smith had hoped that Prable would be willing to remain as a subordinate commander in Barron's squadron, but Prable had already determined to make his leave once the new commander took over. For five days, Commodore Samuel Barron, Captain Edward Prable, and William Eden conferred about Eden's mission to aid Hamid Karamanli. As Barron had the authority to determine whether the mission was a go or no-go, 
Eden had worked during the squadron's journey across the Atlantic and the Mediterranean's Tripoli to convince the Commodore of the feasibility and benefit of his plans. As noted by Zacks, quote, Commodore Barron listened intently. He was unfailingly polite and seemed sympathetic. However, he did not show his hand. He did not explicitly promise his aid. The new Commodore waited to hear the opinion of his predecessor, and it seems that Prable, after a few months of operations against Tripoli, had turned back to supporting a ground operation carried out by Hamid with U.S. support. Thus, on September 15th, Barron issued secret orders for Eden to be transported to Alexandria, Egypt, to make contact and coordinate with Hamid. However, again from Zach's, quote, conspicuously absent from the orders was any mention of supplying arms, ammunition, or money. Barron was, in effect, approving the transporting of Hamid and his forces to a point of attack, along with naval support for Hamid's war efforts. Without funds or weapons, the transportation was useless, and soon even the ship Barron had designated for Eden's use, the USS Argus, was assigned other duties. As Eden stewed over the lack of support for his mission, another player made his exit from the Mediterranean stage. It took some time for Captain Edward Prable to settle his accounts and any remaining business in the region, but finally, towards the end of 1804, aboard the USS John Adams, Prable bid the Mediterranean farewell and made his way back to the U.S., arriving in New York on February 25th and in Washington on Jefferson's inauguration day, March 4, 1805. Prable was hailed as a hero at the time, and indeed, is still hailed as one of the greatest U.S. naval commanders in the pre-War of 1812 period. As described by Prable's biographer Christopher McKee, quote, When President Thomas Jefferson's administration was searching for a leader who could bring the inconclusive naval war with Tripoli to an acceptable termination, Prable came from comparative obscurity to synthesize the talents of a corps of outstanding young officers and to demonstrate that, in spite of monumental handicaps, Objectives could be at least partially won, and honor wholly sustained. His return to the States, however, did not mean the end of Prable's service to his nation, as he quickly threw himself into advocating for the construction of gunboat flotillas that would aid in the continued prosecution of action against Tripoli. The quality of a continuous push towards action that characterized Prable's career, however, would not carry forward into the tenure of his successor. Commodore Samuel Barron had decided that the season was too late to continue Prable's offensive operations against Tripoli. Beyond just a concern about the conditions that would be faced in the latter months of 1804, Barron had a personal reason for not being able to continue the attacks that Prable had ordered. The new Commodore was a very sick man. The first reports of his ill health started in late September, and by late October, what was described as, quote, an affection of the liver had incapacitated him to the point that he was hardly able to make decisions for his squadron. Barron did issue a crucial order on November 10th, however. On that day, he ordered the USS Argus to transport William Eden to Alexandria and for the Argus's commander, Captain Isaac Hall, to supply Eden with, quote, stores, ammunition, money, etc., for the service of the United States in aid of the intended cooperation with Hamid Bashal. Eden arrived in Alexandria on November 26th, and by December 1st had located Hamid so that they could begin to make plans. Early 1805 found Commodore Barron little better, with Tobias Lear recording after joining the squadron that Barron was, quote, very low indeed. He is not able to walk without help. Thus, even if Barron had wanted to resume the military pressure on Tripoli 
so that Lear could negotiate a favorable peace, he was not physically able to do much of anything. As Lear biographer Ray Bryden notes, though Lear was making moves to aid in the peace effort, quote, had Barron been a well man, the pace would have been even faster. The delay on the naval side, however, would allow William Eden the opportunity he needed to put his plans into place. While it's beyond our scope to go into all the detail of Eden's mission, and I recommend Richard Zack's The Pirate Coast, which will be listed on the source notes page for this episode if you'd like to learn more about it. Suffice it to say that the spring of 1805 was a productive time for Eden. By early March, he had gathered the supplies needed, while Hamid had pulled together a force of Arab cavalry, Christian mercenaries, and eight U.S. Marines that set off across the desert. As can be imagined, it wasn't always easy going, and after a month on the march, there was still no guarantee that they would have naval support should they launch an operation against Yusuf's forces. Thus, they waited in anticipation to be able to sight the USS Argus off the coast, an event that they had to hope would happen before they ran out of food. Meanwhile, on March 28, 1805, Tobias Lear received word from Bashaf Yusuf through a Spanish diplomat inviting him to Tripoli under a flag of truce to negotiate. To emphasize that this was a legitimate peace overture and not just a delaying tactic to avoid renewed attacks on the port, Captain William Bainbridge, who had been in Tripolitan custody since the capture of the USS Philadelphia, wrote to Commodore Barron assuring him that this was an outreach intended to result in a peace treaty. Lear thought little of Eden's mission, and felt that negotiations were the only way that the war with Tripoli would ever end. However, before entering into any negotiation, Lear wanted to get a better sense of the Bashaw's position. On April 21st, he received an offer with details. Quote, For $200,000, he, Yusuf, would declare peace and return the American captives. This offer was a significant decrease from the day's previous demand, and was taken as, quote, a clear indication that the blockade and other American military action were having an effect. Before Lear could act, though, Hamid and Eden's forces had spotted the Argus. With guaranteed naval support, as well as the supplies that the Argus brought to reinforce the land force, they were now ready to attack Yusuf's forces at Derna. As described by Zax, quote, the easternmost town of any importance in the kingdom of Tripoli, Derna had a population of around 5,000. Nestled in a wadi, valley, of incredible fertility, though there was so much to export from Derna, the harbor was miserable, shallow, pocked with reefs, and exposed to high winds from the north and east. One traveler reported it was unusable for seven months of the year, from February to August. Still, taking Derna would be a serious blow against Yusuf's regime, and after an offer to surrender without a battle was rebuffed by the governor and additional naval reinforcements arrived, Hamid and Eden's forces attacked Derna on April 27th. As described by historian Frank Lambert, quote, Derna was vulnerable to a well-coordinated land-sea attack, but its defenders were confident that the Americans could not launch such an assault. They did not think that the Navy could mount a successful bombardment from the sea because the harbor was shallow, and American warships could not approach close enough to do serious damage. Though the forces would suffer injuries and fatalities, with William Eden himself being shot through his left wrist, Derna was ultimately taken by Hamid and his assembled forces that day. They did not rest on their laurels and prepared for Yusuf's forces to launch a counterattack. The attempt to retake Derna finally came on May 13th, but was ultimately unsuccessful. Derna was Hamid's, and the battle was a victory for the plan that Eden had been championing for years. There was little doubt now to Eden that this was the first of many victories which would, quote, 
deliver a death blow to the Barbary system and reshape North Africa and the Mediterranean. Eden, however, was unaware of what was happening in Tripoli. On May 22nd, word arrived in Tripoli of Hamid's victory at Derna, and, as described by one of the U.S. prisoners later, quote, the greatest terror and consternation reigned throughout the whole town. Meanwhile, Lear and Barron had come to an understanding on the negotiations with Tripoli, and thus, on May 24th, Lear boarded the USS Essex, which arrived at Tripoli two days later. Lear had drawn ever closer to the ailing Commodore, and it is believed that Lear's influence, if not his very words, were adapted for a letter that Barron wrote expressing that he did not feel that it was the intention of the Jefferson administration to commit to placing Hamet on the Tripolitan throne, and that, quote, the cooperation with Hamet was a means without any specific or definite attainment as an end. And with Barron, quote, withholding my sanction to any convention or agreement, committing the United States or intending to impress upon Hamid Bashaw a conviction that we have bound ourselves to place him on the throne. Armed with that, Lear was headed to Tripoli with more wiggle room for the negotiations. There was, however, one more development upon Lear's arrival at Tripoli. He made his way to the USS Constitution, commanded at this point by Captain John Rogers, a friend of Lear's. It was from the arriving diplomat that Rogers would learn that Barron had decided to step down from his position as commander of the Mediterranean Squadron and had conferred the command on to Rogers. Though Rogers had been anticipating a summer campaign against Tripoli, without question, he joined Lear in heading ashore to engage in diplomacy with the Tripolitan government. As they often do, the negotiations went back and forth the next few days. Finally, though, on June 4th, the final articles were drafted and peace with Tripoli was attained. The U.S. paid $60,000 in ransom for the American prisoners being held by Yusuf, which was a much smaller amount than had been authorized by the Jefferson administration. And in return, prisoners that had been taken by the U.S. would be transported back, Derna would be restored to Yusuf's control, and Hamid would leave the country, with Yusuf agreeing to restore to Hamid his family that Yusuf had held in captivity. As Zaks points out, quote, Lear apparently did not consider the possibility that this peace could be delivering a death sentence to all residents of Derna who had aided Hamid and had trusted the United States. One can imagine Eden's reaction when he received the letter from Lear about the peace treaty. As described by Zach's, quote, over the course of the rest of his life, Eden would at various times chronicle his reaction to Lear's words. Appalled, dumbfounded, disgusted, disgraced, outraged, furious, start to paint the picture. He would eventually accuse Lear of being ignorant, cowardly, and devious, and would one day call him Aunt Lear. Ultimately, though, this peace could not have been attained without the efforts of both Eden and Lear, a fact that even Jefferson himself would acknowledge once he learned of the developments. How this peace would be viewed back in the U.S. and what Eden would do in response to what he saw as the administration's abandonment of an ally that had trusted the word of the United States We'll have to wait to be examined another time, as our time together is drawing to a close. Special thanks again to Anthony from Disastrous History for providing the intro quote for this episode, and be sure to check out Anthony's podcast after you get done listening. Special thanks also to the Itinerant Band for graciously allowing us to use clips from their rendition of Jefferson and Liberty as the intro and outro music for the series. Links for Disastrous History and the Itinerant Band can be found on the website at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U, com. At the website, you can also find episode guides for all of our past episodes, as well as information about how you, yes, you, dear listener, 
can help to support the podcast. The generosity of our patrons has allowed me to start making some equipment upgrades, so a special shout-out and thanks to Matthew, Michelle, Jeremy, Joshua, Michael, Howard, Kara, and Scott for all of their support. If you'd like to contribute as a patron, just go to patreon.com slash presidencies and sign up. Even beyond financial contributions, having so many folks share information about the podcast via social media and word of mouth has helped to bring many new listeners my way. So thanks to all of you who have helped spread the word about presidencies. If you're listening on a platform like Apple Podcasts or Podchaser that allows you to leave a rating and review, I'd greatly appreciate it if you took a moment to do so, as that also helps potential new listeners to know why they should press that play button and give presidencies a try. We recently had a new review left by Alicia of Civics and Coffee, another great podcast that I highly recommend checking out. The review is entitled Do a Deep Dive and reads as follows. Quote, This podcast does the deepest of dives into the presidents of the United States. But what makes this podcast so great is the host breaks up the presidents in several episodes. The listener can pop in and out of their favorite president while out on a morning walk or running a quick errand. The episodes are thoroughly researched and the host has a clear passion for his subject. Highly recommend for anyone wanting to learn more about the presidents. Thank you so much for your kind words, Alicia, and thanks to everyone who has left reviews thus far. If you'd like to send your questions or comments privately via email, I'm available at Presidency's Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Or you can connect with me through social media. I'm on Facebook at Presidency's, on Twitter at Presidency's 89, and on Instagram at Presidency's Podcast, again, all one word. Finally, I can't thank you enough for listening. The podcast just celebrated its fourth anniversary in January 2021, the length of a full presidential term. And as I'm going into the second term, I can't think of better folks to be on this journey through presidential history with than all of you. Until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the facts from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.